One concern sometimes for me with with catchy phrases, depending on how they're framed, is whether then that is used to sort of you know shift the attention or the discussion or hijack it away from the main systemic issues and then pointing people towards straw man arguments. For example, taking action on plastic straws versus tackling packaging in general in everything. Now is the time to turn rage into action. Every fraction of the degree matters. Every voice can make a difference and every second counts. I wanted to panic. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire because it is. From the pandemic to climate change, going it alone is simply not an option. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. From just transition, net zero, or the race to zero, narratives and slogans shape the political debate and much of our policy and practice. Yet, stories are essential to helping us reimagine a better, healthier planet. In this episode, we ask how change is framed, by whom and what language is holding back action, and how does this impact how decisions are made. Welcome back to our podcast, Accelerating Climate Solutions. I'm Stefan Schurich from the Foundations Platform F20. And I am Ruth Richardson from the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. Let's start this episode with a quote from COP26 President-designate Alok Sharma from a panel discussion with climate scientists on the IPCC report last year. Quote, but the reality is that we need far more in terms of action, an action that actually follows the facts. The science shows us that to keep 1.5 alive, we must have global emissions by 2030 and reach net zero emissions by mid-century. Yet only 13 of the G20 have committed to net zero, and only eight have submitted new NDCs that are more ambitious than their previous ones. And I'm encouraging every nation to step up action on coal, on cars, on forests, and on methane, to follow the facts, to work together, and keep 1.5 degrees alive by ultimately listening to the science." End quote. So do we follow the story or follow the science? In this episode, we ask how change is framed, by whom, what's the role of language in inspiring action, and how this impacts how decisions are made. We are really delighted to welcome to this episode today Sven Egenter from Clean Energy Wire and Tinwei Lin, freelance journalist and most recently specialist food correspondent for the Thompson Writers Foundation. Welcome to you both. We're really, really delighted to have you. And as our listeners know, we kick off our podcast with the following question. If you could press a button and change one thing about climate action, what would it be? Tin, I'll start with you. You know, Ruth, I thought long, long and hard on this question because in a way I know exactly what I want to see, <laughs> which is more concrete action on climate change. Just, just, just everything on the table, doing whatever we can 
in the soonest, in the most urgent way we possibly can, because we've gone past that point where we don't understand the implications of not doing anything, right? Like you said in the introduction, I'm a journalist focusing specifically on food systems, climate change and their intersections. And I think in both cases, we know what the problem is, we know what's at stake, and we also know the solutions. We just have to do it. But keep, I keep going back, okay, so I want to see more concrete action. Why isn't this happening? Why aren't we doing it? And I've I've just keep coming back to the same conclusion. I'd love to hear what you know Sven's take on it because I see it as the one of the biggest reasons why we're not moving as much as we should is because there are so many forces that are against action. And these are powerful forces who know exactly what is at stake, but are just being obstructive because the actions that we need to take do not benefit them. So I guess my answer is that if I can press the button and change one thing is that I would like climate action to be free from entrenched corporate interests, because then politicians can really do what they've been elected to do, which is to represent the best interests of their constituents, by which I mean us. Yeah, that's the one thing that I would like to change. Tin, I was just going to ask you, I, I hear you on vested interests. I'm just wondering if the politicians might be part of the problem too. <laughs> oh, I, absolutely. But then we can't really shift in some ways without laws, right? It's. I think it's great to have, you know, alliances and great to have initiatives and ideas. And I think we've seen that so much with the debate on food systems, right? There are so many coalitions and people who have the same ideas, but unless, you know, national laws change or governments really want to implement it, it's so difficult to shift, you know, see real shift and, you know, the vested interests, unless there is actually regulation against them, I think, I think they will continue to do what they've been doing, which is being obstructive. Well, that's, that's really very insightful and very true, in fact. Um, Tin, I just wanted to give uh, Sven a chance to also come in here with this button question, because we now hear climate action sits um, on bold letters on the button that Tin um, pushes. Uh, and I was wondering, what's on your button? If you could change really one thing that you think would have the biggest impact on climate impact, uh, or on climate, on climate action, what would it be? Yeah, thank you. I, I took the question as a bit of be more fairy tale, you know, as in sort of like to solve the problem as in one go. And obviously then I would like to change the science and make greenhouse gas effects go away. But um, obviously that was not your question. And, and you know, even then, you know, I would have said maybe there are things that, and, and that brings me to, to a slightly more sober analysis maybe. Um, there are other things in, in humans' lives that for all the pressing needs to take climate actions are for a lot of people very much more current and much more existentially threatening in the very now. And, and that's why I'm saying if I had a button to push to give us a bit more leeway to focus on taking the right steps, which indeed, and I agree with Tin and you guys, you know, we know what they could be, to fix the climate crisis, uh, you know, that button would be to end violence um, and in particular to end warfare. And, and as we've seen across the world, actually, but now in particular here in Europe with the war in Ukraine, there's a lot of potential to do a lot of harm 
where certainly people cannot focus on taking the right climate actions right now. And, and if I want to get some leeway herein to do the right thing and to communicate well on climate action and, and talk about the solutions, the magic button would be bang, violence is out. I think we can discuss about everything going forward, but, you know, no violence. Wow, that's um, something that makes a lot of sense to me especially seeing the huge distractions that we see from the fact that we have to deal with with a war and with one guy thinking that shooting at each other is still a matter of claiming power um, I couldn't I couldn't more agree with that I was just about to share the previous um, answers from previous interviewees and previous um, episodes but I won't so I ask everyone to cross-check again with our, um, you know, to look at the other answers. It's actually quite interesting to see that the answers are quite, in a, in a way, moving into the same direction, but quite different. We're seeing a lot of interesting activity around climate activists campaigning for media outlets to not accept advertising money from big oil or others, especially those that are seen to be greenwashing. So, Tim, this sort of connects back to your point with your magic button. Who is owning climate action narrative today? And maybe, Tin, I'll go with you first. And perhaps for our listeners, you can also connect sort of the, the food climate agenda and the dominant beliefs or narratives that influence the debate in this space, too. So speak a little bit about the narrative and then speak a little bit about who's owning that narrative or what needs to shift in terms of ownership of that narrative. Yeah, I mean, that's another really interesting question. And I think for a very long time, right? And I think there's been such a long and established, and I must say evidence-based history of, of this narrative or propaganda or whatever you want to call it against climate change and action, right? From vested interests. So I think we are just, well, when I say we, because I, I'm sorry, I guess in that sense, I'm biased. I am towards, you know, acting on climate change and I'm towards action on transforming our food systems. Um, I think we're just, just a small step in a very, very long, long journey towards sort of rebalancing some of that narratives and discussions. It's only been in the recent history, right, that we are starting to, to see a lot of this, this campaigning around, you know, holding companies or individuals or, or governments accountable for greenwashing. But I think it's going to take so much longer to undo the harm that I think has been done by decades and decades of just, you know, in terms of both in terms of food and climate, what it means as development, right? What it means as growth um, from shifting diets to changing our lifestyle, um, just making people understand what climate action is required. And I think in some ways, owning the narrative is important. You know, obviously as a journalist, I, I, I really believe in the power of storytelling, but I also think what is equally important is, is execution right? Getting things done. Um, and I think we, we need to be doing both, owning the climate action narrative, as well as pushing people to actually do something, not just, not just on, on this you know, arena of storytelling and narratives, if that answers your question. Yeah, no, fantastic. And, and Sven, I'd love to hear from you from the energy space, but also another question just following on Tin's comment is, you know, how do we actually reach people 
because I'm constantly amazed at how so many people just don't understand. So they're coming from a perspective of lack of understanding, not because they're being obstinate or they don't believe in climate change or what have you. It's just they don't know. So can you just share a little bit with us about this sort of um, question of, you know, climate action narrative, both in terms of the narrative from the energy space and then also like how do we actually reach people? Yeah, I mean, this is indeed the key question. First thing is I would urge us all to take every single individual, but also societies and ourselves seriously in this debate as human beings who work in certain ways, who think in certain ways and who have certain preferences because of their cultural and and, and personal uh, sort of backstory and heritage. What do I mean? First of all, I don't think that beyond the fact that there is a globally threatening um, climate crisis, I'm not sure that there is one single narrative that works, whether you use it in Germany, in India, in the Caribbean, or somewhere on the southern tips of Chile. I do feel that, yes, the same scientific facts apply uh, when it comes to climate change, but we are talking about climate action, and climate action is inherently change to the way society works. It's about a process, and that obviously has a lot of back round um, in terms of culture, in terms of way of speaking. And also, you know, we have a tendency to sort of think because we have had this moment where we realize that, you know, time is running short and, you know, we need to act now. Everybody agrees immediately. But if you look around yourself and in all societies, that is true, in everyday, people's everyday lives, you know, other things do matter. And that brings us back to what makes climate change this famous problem, this wicked problem from hell to communicate. There are a lot of things that matter that happen now. Climate change is a slow moving process where we do something that happens every day in our everyday life. And that has an impact 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later. Um, it's done here and it has an impact elsewhere. Uh, if we take action here, we might not even see the benefits immediately that might happen elsewhere. So there's a massive communication challenge and there's a tendency to assume that, you know, just because we keep repeating it <laughs> and, and point to the facts, you know, people will understand what they need to do. And that's not how, if we are honest, that's not how we ourselves work. We tend to love the idea that we are rational beings. And if we get presented with enough facts, then that works. And that brings me to the final point about, you know, sort of condemning those bad people who are responsible for climate change um, because they're out of vested self-interest. Well, we all are, because we all, with our vested self-interests, are involved. Um, now, some more, others less. Totally true. Some get a bigger pro profit out of that, others less so. Others just do it out of ignorance or because they can't be bothered. But, you know, this is a collective problem. This is not something you you, you just slam dunk with one narrative how do we reach everybody? Well, let's start with speaking to the things that really matter to them. Fairness, you know, food security, energy security, getting your child into good education, 
All these things are stuff where we need to talk about when we talk about keeping, you know, our world uh, running in a stable climate environment. Rather than using terms like, and that probably you would love to talk about this, 1.5 degree target or the Paris Agreement, that means nothing to most people. And, you know, and, and even when we talk about the scientific facts, yes, I think people have gotten the idea that we as human beings do something that obviously creates uh, climate change and, uh, and surveys actually back that up. But in terms of what that means in detail, well, then we are down into the political process, uh, how we fix it, and not in the world of just another study and another nice chart that shows something that most people can't relate to. So in short, accept that people have their own cultural background, that they have their own lives to live in all societies that differs. And if you want to create a story that, that takes people along, that creates societal dynamic, you have to cater to these sort of backgrounds, to these understandings in a language that resonates with um, those people who want to take action rather than creating some sort of overarching line. One last sentence. Obviously, there is an element of human activity, let's say, that resonates everywhere. And that's where the Fridays for Future movement has really struck a chord across the globe because their message was, we are young people and it's our future. And that is something I think we all from our sort of memories as being young could relate to and, and parents can relate to and grandparents can relate to. So that was a very powerful narrative. Unfortunately, it doesn't tell you what exactly it is we need to do on all levels. But in terms of getting people, you know, raising awareness, I think that was probably the, the strongest uh, a narrative, you know, you, you could have had possibly for that difficult and complex issue. Thanks. Uh, very comprehensive answer. And Sven, I agree in many points that you made. Just one question. When you say, I'm not sure whether there's such a thing like, you know, the narrative um, uh, or one narrative for that matter, but more, you know, depending on to whom you're speaking in terms of which countries, which needs, which um, environment they, you know, which level of education and so on and so forth. But wouldn't that also apply for whether you talk to politicians or civil society or let's say people who run their business on the combustion of oil, gas and coal? Because they probably also require a different, if you like, narrative or Of course, some of them actually put narratives out that are confronting climate action because it's, a, in a way, a defense strategy for their business case. So long story short, yes, Fridays for Future has a clear case because from their perspective, they don't see that future or they see a future that they don't probably want to live in, different from how we you know, we as, um, let's say, um, you know, people in the 40s, 50s or 60s or so from how we've experienced it in the past, that's a pretty clear narrative. But what is actually the narrative that politicians need to then really implement things like the Paris Agreement, because it remains a political binding agreement? Well, you know, see, this is something that, again, you know, I first of all, I agree with you, there are strong vested interests who 
led by individuals because, you know, vested interest always sounds like this sort of neutral force that, you know, pops up out of nowhere um, that, you know, obviously are protecting their source of power, their source of wealth, and so on and so forth. And yes, you need to call them out. But that's, you know, a question of sort of not letting people get away with their narratives. First of all, that's a classic journalism job. I mean, at the Clean Energy Wire, one of the projects that we're in the midst of, of creating is how do you track climate neutrality claims from companies and what they actually mean, because um, that that is obviously a very difficult question. It's not as simple because some really try and they may still get it wrong. Others will twist uh, the truth to the possible limit in order to protect existing businesses. But again, as you said, you know, all these various stakeholder groups in the energy transition, as you would call them, they require different different approaches. And if you talk about politicians, look, it, it is the same. I, I don't think that you can take a typical German narrative that rallies the people here behind the idea that a more climate action and faster climate action is needed will exactly resonate in, in the same way uh, in Brazil. Um, I mean, yeah, I could give you a few examples, and we've just been joking about Germany's transport transition. Uh, I think that the level of detail at which we are sort of in the process of readjusting our transport system to make it more climate-friendly or in ultimately net zero, I don't think that there are many countries that can follow this conversation and, and just adapt it to their to their home country. I mean, this is why the Clean Energy Wire exists. We try to make the context a bit more understandable uh, to someone who, who who looks at it from the outside. Um, so I'm I'm sorry to disappoint you. I think we can now go case by case. You know what what might be an interesting sort of positive solution based storyline for various sectors and for various countries and parts of society and regions. But I, I, you know, I, other than, you know, creating this sort of strong and, and, and this is the, the process that we have been in for quite a while, this very strong line of, you know, this is a global challenge this, that affects us all. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that we can create a one fits all narrative um, that, that applies in all levels to all parts of society. And every society on the globe, that, that is to say. Well, for that matter, I think a future, a livable future is a narrative that applies for everyone. It's just sitting on a different, let's say, you know, it's got a different granularity. It's got a different level of detail, of course, as if you would go into more detail and then discuss whether the narrative of a baseload grid thing would apply here or another country. But I have another question when very quickly on catchy phrases and catchy terms. We've uh, looked into the um, most recent discussions and there are a couple of UN climate summits happening at the moment around terms like, you know, the net zero journey or a net zero economy or whatever, or the, the race to zero or so. Does this rather help climate action or is this actually more doing harm or holding back because people have even less fantasy to envisage what a net zero should entail? 
Well, I mean, it comes back to what you said earlier. I think on a political level and also in a level of diplomacy and, and you know, uh, the sort of negotiating between uh, governments and, and businesses, I think these targets, these phrases are very valuable. They can be the sort of guiding line for these discussions. The only thing is that when if you want to create broader support, uh, for individual measures, I don't think they they work particularly well. That is, you know, I I'm, I'm not sure where on a broader sort of communication level or in a societal debate, actually, you know, that this would be a sort of convincing argument uh, to make because you have to do a lot of explaining to do. And then actually the explanations is where you get into the nitty gritty details that people can relate to. So, on a political short answer, on a political level, yes. If it is about regulation, is it about goal setting? Is it about diplomacy? Yes. If it is putting things into action on the ground, probably not. <laughs> if I could just jump in a little bit, just to follow up from Sven, just to say that yes, you know, I absolutely agree with him in terms of having different levels and different aspects of narratives, as well as having multiple narratives, right? I mean, uh, just now you talked about, you know, having this livable future, which is, I guess, in a way, a baseline, you know, a narrative, or if you were talking about catchy phrases, perhaps that's the baseline for everybody to be able to aspire to. But a livable future is going to be very, very different if you are a citizen of the United States or if you are a citizen of Myanmar, right? Um, and, and, and you need to be able to reach different constituents and different communities where they are at. And that's why I think in, 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 in some sense, having a global climate message is so difficult because you can't hit everybody at the right, at, at exactly the same level and expect everybody to understand it in the same way, right? Now, having, having said that, I also do want to I guess maybe push back just a little bit on on the framing of the climate crisis as as complex, right? I think the details of the science behind it are definitely complex. Understanding all the different elements and and the way our economic and social systems are constructed, how it's all dependent on that's complex. But I think the overall the overarching message or issue is very simple, right? The way we are currently living is just completely unsustainable. And therefore, we need to do something about it. And yes, absolutely, there's going to, there, there are going to be communities who are going to be massively affected by the transitions that we want to see, whether it's the energy transition or whether it's, you know, in terms of food transition, processing, production, you know, retailing. But hard doesn't necessarily mean complex, right? If we have the will, I think there are things that that can be done, um, and I agree that you know catchy phrases can be can be useful. They work, right? They they stay in your mind, um, but they alone won't you know won't do the hard work. They won't be doing the heavy lifting. They're just they're they're good as the initial conversation starter, not as action points, not as concrete uh, 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 concrete things to do. And I think, you know, I guess one concern sometimes for me with, with catchy phrases, depending on how they're framed, is whether then that is used to sort of, you know, shift the attention or the discussion or hijack it away from the, the, the main systemic issues and then pointing people towards strawman arguments, 
right? Um, like, for example, taking action on plastic straws versus tackling packaging in general in everything. Um, you know, it 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 gives sometimes the it, it, these things give people the feeling of doing something without actually doing anything substantial to the business models that are actually wrecking the planet. Let's talk about food loss and waste, you know, obviously linked to emissions, but there's a lot of talk about individual households and, you know, people being responsible for food waste, but there's also decades of marketing that make people only want to buy fruits and vegetables that are perfect. You know, there's also waste from retail and schools and canteens and all that issues. Again, similar uh, debate around the diets that people consume, particularly over meat, right? We're told that we can change things by changing our diets or, 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 or reducing our food waste. But some of these things are not available or possible for poor households or communities in poor countries. They just do not have the resources to be able to afford healthy and sustainable diets. So sometimes if you take these catchy phrases or issues to the extreme, what happens is they create a wedge between those who can make the changes and those who cannot. And people start judging each other. And I think that's a really dangerous, you know, slope. Um, and and, and that's, that's, that's my concern with you know, taking catchy phrases as a whole. Um, but again, like Sven said, I think they're useful as headline. Tin, I love your comment about complexity. I think that's really important <laughs> to sort of pull that apart a little bit. You know, what is complex? What is hard? What's the difference um, there? So thank you for that point. I also hear both of you very much on the need for kind of differentiated communications based on locale, on individuals on, you know, culture, background, context, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's a really, really critical point. But I want to go back to this question of, of um, sort of positive communications. And I think you, you brought this up. A 2020 environmental research study found that a massive 98% of environmental stories are negative in nature. Rainfall, retreating glaciers, flooding, catastrophes, heat waves. You know, we could go on and on and on with the list. And I know from the Global Alliance's own research on food systems, it's really hard to lift up and communicate the positive stories of action. And I think it seems to be the same sort of in the climate space. So what I'd love to explore with you a little bit more is, is how do we transmit the urgency and the kind of multifaceted nature of the climate crisis while still encouraging positive action? And, you know, can we balance kind of the seriousness of this, the absolute urgency of it with optimism and hope? So, Tin, maybe I can go to you first on that one. That's a <laughs> that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I wish I have an easy answer, um, but I don't. I guess, you know, one example is like you said, you know, positive stories. And I think Sven mentioned that as well. You know, the, there's the terminology, right, called solutions journalism, which is essentially uh, looking at not just focusing on the problems, but uh, looking at the solutions. And, you know, the Thompson Reuters Foundation, who I used to work for, you know, we've been covering climate issues. Gosh, I, I worked for them for like nearly 13 years. And, you know, so since about 15 years ago, we've been covering climate. But from the communities that have been hit hard and what they are doing. So one of the ways that we wanted to do was to show that, you know, developing nations are not just 
passive recipients. They already have great ideas. They are already, you know, testing things. They are already doing, you know, really interesting stuff. And of course, you know, the technology and and and, and all of that is different from stories if they're being developed from develop in, in developed nations versus developing countries. But that's that's how we try to do it. And I think that's a good way of doing it. And solutions journalism. But I think one one thing we have to remember with solutions journalism is that not all the aspects of the climate crisis have solutions. So we need to make sure that we don't, you know, take it to the extreme. It needs nuance, right? A lot of the discussions, and I think sometimes that's lacking in both climate and food systems debate. But having said that, I think, yes, you know, solutions journalism and and, and showcasing real action um, on the ground that are scalable, replicable elsewhere, it's it's really, really important. But I think also important to remember that we're not providing false hopes, right? That 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 the examples that that the media provides are actually, you know, grounded in in research and science and evidence. Like you said, unfortunately, you know, with the media, we always say when it bleeds, it leads, right? So unfortunately, negative stories do have a tendency to take a lot more space than positive space. I'm hoping that's that's changing. We'd love to hear from from Sven what you think about. And just in Germany, I, you know, I keep following the news here. And one of the stories that um, came up recently was that we're still using failed images for the heat wave, that we're still using pictures of people jumping into a pool, yeah, or just cooling down a little bit in the fountain in the city center or so. And then you say, you know, heat wave. But on the other side, of course, you know, it's trying to not make the news as bad as they probably are. So I wonder what your take is on this, Sven. Well, first of all, now I know what I should have put on that button at the beginning, you know, you asked me about. Make that very difficult, you know, Tim called it the million dollar question, go away, you know, how to alert people to a really big, 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 big problem of existential threat without creating panic, despair, and ultimately sort of paralysis, you know, that which is exactly what we don't want, you know, and as society, but also as human beings, we shouldn't want that. So that is a big issue. Now, my, my fix for that is, look, let's turn it around. And I agree with Tim, you know, it is all about solutions. And, and I like even more the German word for that type of journalism, constructive journalism. You know, we want a debate that is focused on the problem, but not just on the description of the problem and who's to blame, but also in terms of a complete story, as it was called at my times at Reuters. What's next? How do we fix it? How do we get it sorted? Um, but that's only half of the story. Actually, I would wish that in, in five years from now, we wouldn't have that conversation about climate journalism and solutions journalism anymore. But we have just turned it around and say, look, if you're a reporter who write on anything that is in your daily life, you ask yourself the question when you do your reporting, is there something that creates additional greenhouse gas emissions or is there something that reduces it? And you make that clear and transparent to your readers. And then you start focusing ultimately with the awareness of your readers and viewers and listeners on those stories that really get, you know, towards 
the right direction. That's exactly where you need a goal or a target because otherwise you don't know what the right direction is. But beyond that, you know, make that part and also in your storytelling. And then you're, you can't do positive stories without labeling them necessarily as climate solution stories. I always tell the, the, the thing that I went to, um, to uh, you know, the city where I worked in Hanover for, for, for two years in the past. And I visited a friend and she took me to a restaurant, the, the new place. And it happened to be a vegan restaurant. And now they did they label themselves as climate friendly? No. Would I label them as climate friendly? Well, yes, because I know that they are, because the way they 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 produce the food apparently and they use it. But the real story was that they had a bumper menu that was just brilliant food, you know. And I know now people will roll their eyes and say, "Yeah, but that's a typical first world way of looking at it." I'm sure you can use the same type of storytelling on all levels. And and one thing I really agree with, uh, Tin and I don't want to be mistaken, a lot of the big changes are ultimately what some people would call systemic, you know, where we need as a collective to decide that we are going to do things differently from now on. You know, renewable energies is a classic case. You cannot wait until the last person has discovered the opportunity to use solar panels, you know, or, but you need a system that, you know, pushes that. But even there, you need, in a democracy at least, you need every at least a sufficiently big majority to go along with that and how difficult that can be, you know, we've seen on the wind power front. But yes, I think certain things need a systemic framework and a big sort of shift that's not individualized. It's a collective action. And uh, I want to bring in one last word we haven't used so far and I find really important because it gets neglected way too often. Fairness. I think in all societies, people are pretty allergic for good reasons if they get the feeling that they have to move first and ultimately they may be the only ones moving and, and giving up something or changing their lifestyle, whereas other people don't. And I think that is, and that's true also on a diplomatic level between countries. And I do think this is something that in, in the whole sort of story of the energy transition in, across the globe, the question of how is it done fairly and, and, and how in an equitable way has been neglected, um, you know, much to the detriment actually of moving ahead. Um, and, and so I would, would you know, encourage to, to, to look at that element, uh, not only in storytelling, but in, in real life, in creating the processes that, that creates fairness um, within societies, but also across, you know, uh, societies on a global level. Especially when it comes to the UNFCCC, the UN Climate Summits, I couldn't more agree with you, Sven. The underlying story on the UN Climate Summits is actually trust or fairness for that matter. So it really is um, about trust between those first movers versus those who, you know, um, are still to be committed to climate action or between global south, global north, between industrialized countries and less industrialized countries and, and, and so on and so forth. And now after um, 27 years, and I actually was at COP1 and have been following that process for more than two decades now, it still is that underlying narrative that uh, the level of trust has only slowly, if at all, increased uh, among those different countries. So fairness definitely is a big issue. One question I had is, 
when you look on the IPCC, when you look on the recommendations from the scientists, obviously you cannot expect from the broad public to understand and to familiarize with all these suggestions. But certainly they are made for politicians to act. If politicians don't take them seriously, or let's say less seriously than other uh, commitments or other questions, then I wonder to what extent does this have to be more translated? It's interesting to see that Fridays for Future refers a lot to the IPCC and really say, you know, this is the first answer you get from Fridays for Future is it's not us saying that, it's the IPCC clearly making the case on where the different trajectories are going to. So question, do we need to translate messages entailed and um, in the IPCC more into pictures or stories that people find interesting to engage upon to increase the political price or the, to increase the, the value of political action, let's say? Uh, I'm, in, I'm in two minds about this because I, I come from you know, Burma, Myanmar. I've lived in, in, in and worked in Southeast Asia for nearly a decade. Um, I've reported from many parts of Africa as well. And you know, in my conversations with farmers and, 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 and most of the farmers in, 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 you know, in these two massive continents, as well as even ordinary consumers, you know, people understand and do not dispute the fact that climate crisis is happening and they understand what is happening. They understand the causes of it. They understand, you know, the, 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 the drivers and even, even maybe not all, but some of the actions that needs to be taken. And, you know, I, I do want to say, I guess, going back to what Sven said, very important thing about fairness, right? Um, I was I was in a conversation a couple of weeks ago with uh, two journalists um, who are covering climate issues and agriculture in the U.S. And they were talking about how difficult it is to talk to farmers in the U.S. about climate change and what a sensitive topic it is. And I wonder, you know, whether a lot of the communities in developing nations are aware of what is going on and what needs to be done. But it is. Uh, the communities in the developed nations who feel they have to give up their lifestyles, right? Again, going back to the perhaps that fairness question, you know, they have to give up their lifestyles. The fact that tackling climate change or transforming food systems and reducing the emissions mean they can no longer have a, a heated house or, you know, an air conditioned house and drive a car. That is, you know, that that's perhaps some of the, the key issues of resistance around this action. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just that my experience has shown that, you know, people in developing nations may not necessarily understand the 1.5 degrees. They may not understand what Paris Agreement is, may not understand who the IPCC are, but they are living the climate crisis. They know what's happening. They know what needs to be done. I think a lot of it is getting the political will and perhaps some of the communities who have gotten used to living a carbon heavy lifestyle to perhaps make the adjustments. And maybe that is where the difficulty lies. That's just that's just my two cents worth. 
Yeah, I mean, now I'm so I'm, I'm nodding so heavily uh, to everything Tina said that I forgot the original question. Sorry, Stefan, you have to repeat that uh, because I, I agree with Tin. I, I think, you know, but that's what I meant when I was talking about, you know, you need a different approach to communicate and to organize, you know, climate action in, in a country uh, that has a heavy carbon heavy lifestyle uh, and where people by cultural sort of development are used to that. Um, then you would need in terms of talking and also with the aspirational nations. Well, I mean, you know, let's let's face it, in many places, as far as I can tell, you know, um, the, the aspiration was to get, a, uh, I mean, flagged to, to parts of the middle class, at least, was that one day you will lead a lifestyle uh, in, in many ways and amenities that, that re rivals that of, of uh, um, you know, the United States or, or, or Europe. So uh, I think that's a different challenge from the places that Tim mentioned. And I think you're right. Uh, absolutely. I think they, they, they do get it if you're affected yourself. And if you can see it, uh, you may not have the same label for it, but you, you certainly get the, the, the threat and the, the sort of challenge and, and uh, the, the danger behind it. The question that's burning in my brain is we're talking a lot about how to communicate and what that looks like differently, different parts of the globe, different cultures, etc. I want to kind of go internal to the culture of communications and media and journalism. You guys are part of the, the communications world. And Sven, I think it was you who said that, you know, in communicating any story, journalists need to make the climate connection, regardless of what the story is about. But so often we can pull in what the climate impacts are, the implications or, you know, point to different action. So what I'm wondering is within the world of journalism, within the world of media outlets and big communications houses, is that kind of culture shift happening? Is there an increased awareness of the need for different kinds of climate communications? Or do you feel that's lagging? If you strip out the word communications here, because obviously journalists, yes, we do communicate, but we would never define ourselves as communicators because ultimately there's a slight difference in approach that does matter. Yes, it is happening. And to various degrees, uh, depending on, on the media market and uh, the media culture in the various, uh, at least in the Western democracies, I have to say, um, it is happening, but I, you know that that's where I can comment reasonably confidently about. There are there is an increased awareness not only by individual journalists but also by media houses. I mean, we've had a number of very very interesting conversations with publishing houses um, about you know how to sort of go about it. Let's phrase it as openly as possible as a journalistic venture, and and then there are all these smaller projects that sort of have popped up over the last uh, few years where uh, journalists organize themselves in networks where they create sort of independent media outlets that focus more on um, the transition stories. There's also some foundation-funded uh, projects like ours, for instance. And, and, and so, yes, there is an increased awareness. There's also an increased willingness but again, you know, the, the, the devil then is in the detail and that's, you know, that's where it does get complex because just chucking in a line on uh, climate change in every story, that doesn't make it because that will not trigger change. You know, it needs to be where it is relevant, where it is relevant for the discussion and that's where journalists 
as everybody else, need a solid understanding what are the driving forces of climate action and, and what are policies that reduce uh, emissions and what works and what doesn't. And, and then they must ask the right questions to the decision makers and track them and monitor them and, and, and control them and allow the public the access the public needs. But that, that process has just started. And I think there are some front runners. But in general, I think there's still a bit to go. But the willingness is there and the awareness is there, which is obviously a very good starting point. One I would not have believed we find ourselves in right now um, after a severe pandemic and all the, the sort of upheaval that has brought. And Tin, what about you from your journalistic perspective? I was just going to say, you know, I absolutely agree with Sven in that there is definitely a much better understanding, I think, amongst newsrooms about the importance of, you know, covering climate change. I think if you look at the major news agencies, you know, AP, AFP, Reuters, who we both incidentally worked for at one point, you know, they're all really focusing a lot of attention on climate coverage. Having said that, again, like Sven said, I think it's not just about writing about the fact that currently there are wildfires happening or the fact that there is now a drought in the Horn of Africa. And there needs to be a deeper understanding and being able to ask the pertinent questions and whole, you know, powerful, and I mean both governments and, 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 and corporations to account. And I think I, I just want to give you one quick example. A lot of the, it's not directly linked to climate change, but definitely linked to food systems. A lot of the coverage around the crisis in Ukraine, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there was a lot of concerns around what it means for food security. And there were so many stories about food shortages when the fact is the physical supply of food that we have around the world is enough to feed everybody. It always has been. Hunger has always been a political decision or inaction. It is not about availability. It's about affordability and access. But the problem is because suddenly there is this conflict that has happened and then people are jumping in. And, you know, I, journalism has unfortunately gone through a really, really terrible time, right, over the past few years. So much cuts in, 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 in you know, newsrooms and journalists are having to do 10 different duties and cover so many different topics in one go that when you come in, you just say, oh, yes, we're running short of grains, we're sh running short of food which then encourages hoarding, which then encourages panic buying, which then encourages, you know, export controls, when in reality, the issue is affordability and access. So in that same vein, I think, while it is commendable, and so much needed, that there's such an interest and focus now on climate issues, it's also so, so very important that journalists see, you know, short term actions versus what needs to be done long term. But Sven talked about wanting to end violence at the beginning, right? How much emissions is the, is the war contributing to all the use of, of those weapons? In short, I think it's, it's, it's great, but I think it's really important to understand the nuances and the, 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 the different issues and be able to ask the right questions and keep you know, people uh, accountable. Well, many thanks, Tin, and many thanks, um, Sven, for taking your time. This was an excellent conversation. Just um, summing it up, obviously, the last point was whether or not um, the awareness 
in journalism has increased about climate action. And the two of you are saying it has indeed. I would say it has indeed. I would totally agree. You see that events related to the climate crisis are being reported in context of the climate crisis. And that is more increasingly the case than it has been 10 years ago. Now you immediately have the question of to what extent is the climate crisis part of the roots of this or that or that weather extreme? And I think that's definitely something that we have to acknowledge and which is good. But however, as Sven put it uh, in his answer on constructive journalism, we should not only report about crisis, but we should also really put the light on solutions and also highlight solutions and highlight uh, the context of the crisis and the solutions. I think this is still still to come. So just starting from the button question and what you would change and Sven's answer on ending violence immediately because we have more urgent things to deal with with the climate crisis than to shoot at each other. And from Tin, the answer on starting climate action now, I think we've had a great journey through the different subjects of communication, starting with the challenges that um, the now is always more important for people than the tomorrow or than, you know, the next year or in 10 years or so. And uh, that now means very different things for people in different parts of the world that global sometimes means someone else and not me, myself. We've also discussed about the question on what means we? I mean, do we have to differentiate between the recipient of communication and the sender and whether you are a politician or whether you are a civil society or whether you live in the global south or in, in industrialized countries and so on and so forth. So has comms or communication differentiate these different sort of recipients of communication. We have also discussed the reporting about the urgency of the climate crisis versus the question of remaining optimistic and how to remain optimistic and how to also cover optimistic stories about it and whether it's actually possible to still remain optimistic also in communication when the urgency is so so clear. That led us to the discussion of constructive journalism and uh, solution journalism and the huge and important underlying system of fairness and trust. I don't know if this gives in any sense justice to the discussion, but these were my points that I highlighted on my little card here. Um, Ruth, may, you may just add, or Tin and Sven, if I've forgotten something particular, please. No, I just like you summing up, uh, Stefan, with fairness and trust. Yeah, I think, uh, well, thank you for allowing us this tour de force through the sort of more or less complex uh, intricacies of communication and journalism. And I do think that if we learned one thing over the last 40 years or 50 years of science communication, that while the science is clear, the communications uh, has not always been that much. So maybe uh, we'll take that uh, as a sort of job for all of us to, to work uh, on all levels of the communication. No, thanks very much for having me. And, you know, I think this is possibly one of the most interesting and rewarding 
spaces in journalism to be in. And I just really hope more and more people get interested. Um, I'm an optimistic person by nature. I have to be covering the topics that I cover. Um, so I, I do hope that things will, you know, eventually get better and that we are, you know, on that, hopefully on that upward slope. And, and, and I want to, and I want to leave with a, with a hopeful, optimistic picture. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure and, you know, we could have stayed on the line for three hours, but appreciate you taking an hour of your day to um, to speak with us. Um, so many, many, many thanks. And um, for our listeners, share your feedback on this episode via the platform you're listening on or join the conversation on Twitter at F20 Platform and at Future of Food Org, Instagram, F20 Platform, and of course, LinkedIn. Thanks again, Sven. Thanks again, Tin pleasure to be in conversation with you today. Many thanks and thanks for your good work.